Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Washington Weekly Podcast for a special After the Vote edition where we will break down the results, what we know as of this morning, the day after Election Day, talk about the policy and investment implications of the outcomes and what comes next as we all look ahead to 2023 and 2024. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to have with us two subject matter experts from UBS who have been covering these races very closely throughout the course of 2022. They are Tom McLaughlin. Tom is the head of fixed income for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Tom also serves as the co-author of the Chief Investment Office's Election Watch publication series. We're also fortunate to have with us Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Shane is also a contributor to the Washington Weekly Publications and the Washington Weekly Podcast here at UBS. So, Tom, Shane, it's great to be with you both on this morning after Election Day. I'm sure it was a late night for you both as results came in during the early morning hours, so hopefully you both got some sleep. But a lot to cover today as some races still have yet to be called. There is a lot outstanding, though a lot known on this Wednesday morning. So curious to hear about your overall thoughts and reflections on the results for both congressional and gubernatorial outcomes. Shane, what are your thoughts and anything amongst the outcomes that surprised you? Yeah, no, I think my first not surprise is that we don't have the full um, tally in. You know, uh, as we've discussed, you know, some of these will take a while and, you know, potentially Georgia is looking at a runoff that would be in December, and that could yet again be the deciding factor of who controls uh, the Senate. So, you know, I, I think to me, some of the surprises are not that the Democrats won the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race, but that it was called so quickly. And then on the flip side, I'm not surprised that Governor Ron DeSantis won in Florida, but I am a little surprised that he won so decisively. I mean, I think you know, the, right now we're heading to towards a territory where Florida is decidedly a red state versus that purple state that's up for grabs. So that could be a very notable development for the 2024 election. So, you know, I, I think we're going to keep looking through all these results and find many more surprises uh, here. But, you know, I, I think... Um, you know, we have we have a lot to digest and, and more to come. Yeah, a lot of results we know, a lot still outstanding. Tom, what about your thoughts as far as the results we have before us as of this morning and what might lie ahead in the days to come? Yeah, good morning, Dan. Uh, I agree with Shane that I think we'll probably unearth some more surprises over the course of the next three or four days. But I guess my biggest surprise is the overall performance of Democratic candidates for the House. Uh, which traditionally has been linked to presidential approval ratings. So one way to look at yesterday's election is that it kind of upended 75 years of history. Um, the Clinton administration in 98 didn't lose seats. The Bush administration in 2002 didn't lose seats in the House. But in both of those circumstances, we had kind of rationales as to why that was an ex- those exceptions to the rule. Uh, I think here, to some degree, we're still groping for reasons why the GOP so badly under with the exception of Florida, as Shane mentioned, which I I agree is becoming a completely red state. Uh, Similarly, Ohio is now effectively a red state, less of a swing state. And now we have new swing states. We have Arizona, we have Georgia, we have Wisconsin, uh, which are more likely to go back and forth. Um, You know, so as we grow for 
reasons as to why the GOP underperformed expectations, it may range from voter frustration over the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court. Maybe there's some fatigue over former President Trump, former President Trump's, pardon me, insatiable desire uh, for attention, uh, which may have distracted from the GOP messaging. And maybe the third one is we actually, and this, we're going to have to wait to see the data, but there may have been kind of a surge in millennial and Gen Z voters um, in certain states, um, thinking about Pennsylvania, for example, that may have basically uh, be a kind of trend we have to watch. The outcomes, the performance relative to expectations, very surprising for the factors, Tom and Shane, you outlined for us. Maybe we can spend some time talking about what each party did right, where they fell short. Shane, what do you think worked well for both parties this election cycle? Yeah, great question. And and I think, you know, to Tom's point, uh, Democrats did a great job turning out their voters. I think we're going to uh, find out in the coming days that they effectively targeted the voters they needed to get out and, and they uh, showed up at the poll. And to Tom's point, you know, it would be a, a major shift for future elections if uh, Democrats were truly successful in getting out those younger voters. Republicans, you know, still um, um, have some things to possibly look forward to and capitalize in future elections. You know, I think there will be a lot of uh, focus and attention on what Governor DeSantis did to have such a decisive win. Um, you know, how he kind of maybe took that Trump mantle and softened it uh, and kind of shed uh, the negatives of Trump. So I think, you know, there, there's uh, positives for each party to focus on. But I also think there are negatives, you know. Um, and I think we have to keep in mind that um, candidates still matter. And I think that's going to be a big takeaway in the coming days and weeks uh, from this election as well. Running with that a bit further on the flip side, Tom, in what areas or ways do you feel both parties fell short? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I uh, was speaking with some of our colleagues as recently as yesterday morning, and I made the comment that um, Chip O'Neill's old adage that all politics is local might uh, be dissipating in favor of an analysis where all politics is national. And I think um, the results from last night suggest that maybe Tip O'Neill's observation uh, isn't quite dead yet. Uh, I think Democrats ran very local issues effectively. They tried to basically bring each of the elections back to their district in the House. They distanced themselves, I think, from the national issues as much as they could. You know, it's challenging to do that when you've got inflation running at the rate we see today. Um, and there's also obviously some observations about criminal justice, public safety, et cetera. The GOP went national. And, I, you know, I, I think that posed a challenge uh, because you had competing messaging. On the one hand, you've got, as Chan indicated, Governor DeSantis basically uh, performing really well. In fact, he's probably the biggest winner of the night yesterday. Um, and the losers, for example, might be the former president and Kevin McCarthy, who was going to be the presumptive speaker. Maybe he still will be, but it's going to be close. Um, we're in a position now where I think it's probably too early to confirm what, frankly, I was speaking yesterday morning, which was all politics is national. I think that may not be the case. Um, and I think, secondly, there was there seemed to be a sense that economic issues, inflation in particular, was displacing social issues, uh, particularly abortion rights. 
And I think, again, going back to the possibility that we're going to be seeing data that suggests that younger voters were coming out in greater numbers, they, they may have come out um, for a number of reasons, but I think that is an issue that resonated a lot this past summer. You recall in the primaries, we actually, uh, Kansas and Michigan and New York, we actually saw that issue resonate very strongly. And I think going into the last three or four weeks of, of the election, we, we thought maybe that's not as powerful a message or an issue. And it turned out, I think, to be just that. It's, it's a very powerful, powerful issue for a large segment of the uh, voter population. At this point, we have a good handle on the results we know as of this morning and why perhaps the chips fell the way they did with these races. Let's maybe pivot, talk about the implications to the policy environment as we head into 2023, this leading up to the next election cycle in 2024. It, it seems like as of this morning, I know the Senate very close at this point, though the House is leaning red, though perhaps not as big of a margin as was expected. Shane, what are your thoughts on the implications of the results to the extent that we know them to the policy environment near term and even over the next couple of years, as I mentioned, as we're heading into the 2024 cycle? Right. No, great point, because, you know, it looks like Republicans are going to barely uh, take the majority in the House. And obviously it matters who controls the Senate. But in some respects, it doesn't matter because we know that Republicans controlling the House means divided government in the next two years. So, um, you know, them taking control of the Senate as well just strengthens their hand a little bit in negotiations with a President Biden. Um, but divided government, you know, realistically means for the next two years, uh, there's only going to be a handful of, of uh, bipartisan measures that get enacted into law. Um, and then from there, you'll hear a lot of noise um, about each party kind of setting themselves up for the 2024 election. You know, uh, obviously, government funding is a kind of must pass. Uh, so that will be something that moves along in the next two years and may often become a vehicle for other things to be passed into law. I think uh, anti-China legislation remi- remains uh, bipartisan. You know, remember earlier this year. Congress passed that CHIPS bill into law, and this was to really um, uh, push the U.S. semiconductor industry so we're, we're not reliant on China for semiconductors as a country. And I think there could be some follow-up to that legislation. So that's something we'll definitely be keeping an eye on, uh, possibly something on the big tech side. But I think the big one uh, for that uh, will require action at some point is an increase to the debt ceiling. You know, um, if, if Congress has always increased the debt ceiling, um, and if they didn't, there, we would default on our nation's debt, which would obviously be a, a real market mover. Uh, but I think, you know, we've seen in previous instances, this was done in a kind of clumsy manner, we'll say, where there was too much noise. And, you know, about a decade ago, it caused the downgrade of our debt. So, you know, I think this is uh, that's going to be a big one for 2023 is how this storyline plays out. And again, the the rest of the agenda is going to be a lot of uh, setting up for the 2024 election. You know, uh, a lot of noise about, you know, what happened to Medicare, Social Security, because those are uh, um, uh, actionable points on the horizon, not in the immediate future. So um, a lot to digest, but. We have to keep in mind a lot's going to be noise, but there will be some bipartisan um, pieces that move along. 
a lot of points of interest there on the policy front. And to your point, Shane, it sounds like it will be a very busy legislative agenda once the new Congress takes shape in a couple of months. Now, turning to the markets, Tom, as we're speaking right now, we do see a bit of red on the screen. Granted, this is coming off several consecutive sessions of gains in U.S. equities. So we have seen a bit of a run-up lately heading into Election Day. But anything to read into, Tom, with respect to the market response we're seeing this morning? And can you speak more broadly to the investment implications of the outcomes as it stands as of today? Yeah, sure thing, Dan. I, I think it may be too early to draw a direct connection between the market open uh, and the results last night, primarily because we're still actually uh, digesting those results. Um, and in addition to that, we also had some other news come out, including uh, Meta laying off 11,000 people. And so there's a lot of noise kind of in the markets this morning that uh, are, are a bit tangential to, to the election results. I, I think if uh, the GOP does take the House with just for the sake of argument, let's say 220 seats or something. I think that poses a challenge for the GOP leadership uh, because it will require near unanimity um, to pass important legislation. And I do agree with Shane that there is a lot of, well, a number of must-pass pieces of legislation. The Farm Bill, for example, next summer is something that they're going to have to get their hands around. They're going to have to strike compromises on. I agree with Shane that the adversarial posture towards China is likely to persist because it's one of the few things that um, are transparently bipartisan inside the Beltway. Um, but the, I think Shane mentioned the debt ceiling vote. I think that's that's something that's that's a critical consideration um, because we've had indications that some members of the of the GOP uh, conference are suggesting that they'll need some concessions in order to vote for that. Uh, Congress has always raised the debt ceiling. I think they will again. Uh, but the manner in which they do it um, and how close they want to basically cut it is going to be uh, a big issue. Budget votes, uh, where dynamic tension exists between social spending on the one side and um, resistance to tax increases, higher defense spending on the other, uh, is an issue. I think foreign aid is going to basically be examined pretty closely as well. I think the, um, from the perspective of some of the investment applications, I think a, a narrow GOP majority uh, is probably leading to a more restrictive fiscal policy that's good for bond markets. Um, I'd be curious to get Shane's view on this one. Uh, I think about um, the fact that the personal tax cuts that we saw in 2017 are not permanent. There's a lot of talk about making those permanent. Uh, I think that may be off the table until the next election, but I'd be curious to hear from Shane Shane on that one. I, I think there's another issue out there, and again, this is another one for Shane and I kind of noodle on, which is does it change the Democrats' approach to the lame duck session? Do they go ahead and try to make a run at the debt ceiling if they if they control the Senate, which seems probably more likely than not, but it's up in the air, um, and they're likely to lose the House? Do they go ahead and try to bypass the whole uh, debate in, in the summer of 23? So it, it's, there's a lot out there. I, I guess the, the simple takeaway is I wouldn't go ahead and, and draw that direct line just yet based on the market open versus the, the election yesterday. But again, an hour has majority is probably good for bond markets. Well, thank you, Tom, for that color and clarity on the investment implications and the market response we're seeing today. Shane, Tom had brought up tax implications. Anything there you'd like to weigh in on? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, what I would expect House Republicans to do if they do take over, as it appears they will, is that I think they'll position themselves 
by working on a tax bill and maybe passing it out of the house um, to try and, you know, uh, say this is what Republicans will do should we win the 2024 election. So to that point of something for us to pay attention to and follow, but recognize that to some degree it's just noise. Now, if some if Republicans do have both the House and Senate, they may try and um, pass the tax bill by reconciliation and dare President Biden to veto it, uh, therefore even elevating it further for the uh, 2024 election. So overall, though, I think it's going to be something that's talked about mainly forward, but it's uh, primarily noise and then we'll be dealt with in 2025. As we've pointed out, there is some races still outstanding, still a lot to be determined with respect to the ultimate makeup of Congress. Though if we indeed do see a split Congress where the House goes to the Republicans, that will result in a shakeup of leadership. So Shane, what might the makeup of congressional leadership look like in a split Congress with the House going to the Republicans? And if that's the case, how collaborative do you believe Congress in the White House will be over the next two years? Yeah, the big question for Republicans, uh, if they take over the House, is who will be speaker? You know, Kevin McCarthy, if Republicans have a majority of 230 uh, or so, you know, he would be speaker. But if it's that narrow majority where Republicans only have, you know, 220, 222 votes, he may not be able to ascend to speaker. And we may be looking to the number two, uh, Steve Scalise. Oh, or, or someone else that we're not even thinking of. So that is in flux, I think, until we see the final number for Republicans. Um, if Republicans do take over, uh, Democrat uh, leadership is probably going to change. I think you'll see Nancy Pelosi step down. Uh, the old guard and current leadership uh, under her of Denny Hoyer and James Clyburn may try and um, you know, position themselves as to continue serving leadership as a transition. But I think we're seeing a lot of younger Democrats really um, pushing for that transition to happen now. They've been told for years that a transition is coming, it's coming. And I think you'll see someone like Hakeem Jeffries uh, possibly rise uh, to be the new leader of the Democratic Party um, should they push hard enough for that transition now. Um, for the cooperation level with the White House, um, if Republicans are in charge, uh, I think it's going to be kind of minimal. I think, you know, they're going to really try and draw the battle lines for the 2024 election. It will be interesting, though, if, if Republicans do take the Senate, you know, how uh, re- the Republicans work uh, with each other. Um, because you've seen Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, and Kevin McCarthy have very different views on how to move forward. I would say also for Mitch McConnell, there was some chatter about Rick Scott, uh, Republican senator from Florida, challenging him for um, his leadership role. That may still happen, but I think without Rick Scott performing well and delivering a clear majority for Republicans, I think um Mitch McConnell is probably going to be safe in his leadership position. Well, it's interesting to hear about how the makeup of Congress might materialize a lot to determine. That's been the recurring theme of the conversation today. So not to get too ahead of ourselves, though I know we're always looking ahead to the next election cycle. That will be a presidential election cycle comes 2024. Shane, when do you expect that candidates for the president will emerge and any early chatter or prospects for both parties, names that we might begin to see over the next few months into 2023? 
Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of chatter already. Uh, you've seen uh, and probably heard that people are uh, clamoring for uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, to try and take up the Republican mantle and uh, transition away from President Trump. I think pre- former President Trump uh, has teased that he's going to announce that he's running for uh, the 2024 election next week. We'll see how that transpires and plays out. Um, obviously, former President Trump says he's going to run. You know, that is a high mountain for Republicans to overcome. He still has um, a very strong base within the Republican Party. So it would be a question of can you know Republicans unite around an alternative um, and you know shift away from President Trump. Uh, but besides you know Trump and DeSantis, there are dozens of Republicans that will run for president should uh, Donald Trump say he's not running. On the Democrat side, you know I think Joe Biden you know may be emboldened to run for re-election, whereas if uh, Democrats had a very bad night, you know he may uh, step away and let, you know, a new younger leader try and take the mantle. You know, he did at one point kind of call himself a transition um, to new leadership. So, you know, that was an homage to maybe only serving one term. And I think that's still possible. A lot uh, on the Dem side as well, there's a lot of names out there who might want to run, you know, from names we've heard before, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, to I think a lot of attention is being given to uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, so, you know, this is going to be <laughs> the speculation that swirls, uh, you know, starting now uh, for, for a while. Remember, you know, you know historically, um, uh, candidates, you know, don't announce right after the midterm election. They usually wait, you know, almost a year. But I think we're going to get a pretty good handle on the field, we'll say, um, by the spring, early summer. Well, by then, I would think anyone who wants to run will actually, you know, step forward. And we wouldn't expect, you know, someone to jump in, you know, Thanksgiving of 2023. I think those days are gone. Uh, people are trying to announce earlier and get momentum going. Because um, if you wait too long, you, you cannot, you know, people have committed to one candidate and it's tough to get them momentum. So, um, I think uh, when when you're sitting down with uh, your family for Thanksgiving and Christmas, you'll, you'll probably be having healthy conversations about who you do do not want to see run. Three or four months uh, respite from the uh, campaign season? Yeah, I think anyone who is seriously uh, thinking about running for uh, president is is already talking with their team. So, I mean, in some, some sense, there is not even a respite. But to your point, yeah, I, I mean, they will be putting together a team quickly to make such an announcement, you know, in that three or four month time frame. So we should enjoy the December holidays while we have them, huh? Turn off your TV and read a good book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we all deserve the little breathing room, the voters and the politicians. And of course, Shane and Tom, yourselves for all of the work you've put into the coverage. It was great catching up with you both this morning on the podcast. Uh, Thank you again for sharing with our listeners your takeaways from the U.S. midterm elections, as well as the policy and investment implications, and for all of your coverage throughout this election cycle. As mentioned, still some unknowns out there as far as outcomes, so there are follow-up conversations to be had, though. Tom, Shane, appreciate your time today, your insights. Looking forward to catching back up again with you both soon. 
Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Again, today we've been joined by Tom McLaughlin, the head of fixed income for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Shane Lieberman, Federal Affairs Manager with the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy. For our listeners, especially our clients out there, I do want to point out a couple of resources, those being UBS.com slash Election Watch, as well as UBS.com slash Washington Weekly for election coverage and investment insights from both the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as the UBS U.S. Office of Public Policy. Again, those websites, UBS.com slash Election Watch and UBS.com slash Washington Weekly. Though from UBS studios. I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.